when conflict happens, there's a there's a bit of a um, misnomer or, or or misconception about how conflict works in organizations. So the, the you know the the traditional idea is that well conflict is between two people and they sort of have it out and that's the end of it. But that's not how it works. Uh, conflict plays itself into group dynamics, and so now it's not just person A and person B in conflict, but it's person A and all of person A's friends versus person B and all of person B's friends. And then the issues also proliferate. And that's what builds this culture of conflict. That's Blaine Dene, founder of the Workplace Fairness Institute, talking about conflict in the workplace. Blaine is a labor lawyer and member of the Law Society of Upper Canada since 1995, and is an expert in both the practice and theory of assisted labor management negotiation, mediation, arbitration, and facilitation. He has the Chartered Mediator designation from the ADR Institute of Canada and is a registered practitioner of dispute resolution through the Canadian International Institute of Applied Negotiation. Blaine trains human resource professionals, labor leaders, and others in human rights, labor and employment law, human resources, collective bargaining, and conflict resolution. He's presently adjunct professor of workplace dispute resolution at Atkinson College, York University, Toronto, and adjunct professor for the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of Toronto. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, and in this episode, we dive into conflict in the workplace. Blaine unpacks workplace conflict and walks us through his restoration process to transform toxic workplace cultures. We speak about symptoms and causes of toxic work environments, the cost of unresolved conflict, the major reason professionals leave their positions, what conflict in the workplace looks like, the process and challenges of workplace restoration, how conflict training is a core competency of leadership, how trust is at the core of workplace restoration processes, the use of coaching as a tool within workplace restoration, what managers and business owners can do to assess and prevent conflict in the workplace, what employees can do if they find themselves in toxic work environments, and much, much more. This is Conflict, Power and Persuasion, podcast of the Canadian International Institute of Applied Negotiation. Hi, Blaine. Uh, thanks for doing this. Hi. In the intro, I provided a short blurb on your, your background. Can you talk a bit about yourself, uh, your professional experience, and uh, how you got into this field? Okay. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, so my, um, uh, my uh, professional background uh, started off as a labor lawyer, a union side labor lawyer. Uh, and uh, I worked uh, in that capacity for many years uh, doing uh, in-house uh, work for a uh, large professional union. But in terms of the uh, workplace fairness uh, type work, that was a uh, passion that grew from increased involvement in mediation and uh, alternative dispute resolution uh, with a focus on work and, um, and the uh, proposition at work that existed when I first started practicing, uh, which is that more or less uh, workplaces have a uh, system. Uh, there's a state system within within workplaces in Canada that's uh, very much an autocratic state system. 
and uh, and that you know uh, really raised questions for me in terms of uh, comparison of our of our lives as citizens in our country and our lives as as workers uh, uh, in organizations and and how there's a you know uh, kind of a disconnect between those two and so the um, uh, my uh, my passion has been very much to um, help organizations see the value proposition in treating workplace participants in the same way that uh, we uh, treat ourselves as uh, citizens in our society. Mm. So you went on and you founded the Workplace Fairness Institute. Can you tell me more about the Institute and the type of work that uh, you do there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I founded the Workplace Fairness Institute in 2005. It was uh, primarily founded uh, for the purpose of advocating for the very concept that I was talking about, fairness in the workplace, uh, and uh, defining what fairness meant, uh, equity of concern and respect for each uh, individual in the workplace, regardless of their position in the workplace. And, um, and uh, looking at structures, workplace structures, uh, and, and how they operationalize that principle. And so uh, to begin with, the Workplace Fairness Institute was very much an, an advocacy um, um, uh, organization, research advocacy. We had uh, produced a, um, a journal, a Workplace Fairness Journal, uh, where we helped kind of broaden the thinking about um, organizational uh, justice and fairness and, and, and uh, you know, how that, that works um, in uh, Canadian workplaces and, you know, workplaces around the world. And it uh, evolved from that into uh, a, a pretty substantial practice uh, in terms of providing uh, workplace restoration services, workplace training services, um, workplace uh, investigation and mediation and uh, consulting. Uh, and the, the latest thing that we are into is, is providing um, uh, a consulting service for uh, federally regulated employers on how to implement Bill C-65. We, we also in the in the um, sort of in the in the course of all that, we developed a uh, you know an, an affinity and friendship with uh, Dr. Martin Shane, who um, is uh, you know considered to be sort of the grandfather of the psychological health and safety standard, and uh, we've worked uh, quite uh, you know closely. Uh, with him in terms of thinking about the relationship between workplace fairness and psychological health and safety. So, mm. um, yeah, and so that's sort of where we're at at this point. Um, we have um, uh, a, a partner organization that we work with called Workplace Fairness West, um, run by Michelle Feneuf, and, um, you know, that organization partners with us on uh, various things. And, and we've also developed other strategic partnerships as well. Mm -hmm. That link between 
uh, fairness and health is uh, is an important one, I imagine. Can I just get the definition you had of fairness? You you, you mentioned earlier, sure. just to highlight, it was equity and respect, uh, regardless of position. Was it was that? It? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's equity of concern and respect uh, okay. for each individual in, in the workplace, regardless of their position in the right. workplace. Wonderful. Um, and and uh, and this is a this is a um, you know concept that is. Um, uh, comes from uh, uh, John Rawls, Ronald Dorkin, trying to define justice as fairness. And, mm. and we've applied that to uh, a workplace context. I want to dig more into the restoration uh, piece. Mm -hmm. Could you give a quick synopsis of what uh, workplace restoration is? And then we'll dig a little deeper into the, the process of that, if we could. Sure. Um, so... You know, in uh, in uh, uh, Canadian workplaces, I guess workplaces around the world, um, there there are often uh, work groups that um, suffer challenges, uh, sometimes uh, historical challenges in the in the way that people work with each other, sometimes challenges related uh, to uh, different management styles and and uh, how they impact on, on people. Uh, and these uh, challenges can cause stress and in some cases, even trauma uh, for workplace participants. And so workplace restoration process uh, is one that is designed to, to help basically with the healing of um, people who have gone through what they've gone through in, in the um, particular work group. But it's, you know, it's more complicated than that in the sense that there's a diagnostic component to it and, and of course, uh, an opportunity to actually improve the, uh, the workplace uh, behavior mm -hmm. structures and ideas. Mm -hmm. So just to make this more clear, when a client uh, approaches you, what are the symptoms that they're typically experiencing in the workplace? So what type of situations are they encountering that led them uh, to seek help? Yeah, there's, um, there's a variety of, of um, you know, sources of trauma. Uh, often um, they relate to, you know, some decisions or uh, a change or introduction of a new uh, leader into the organization or new leaders uh, and uh, kind of a clash of perhaps uh, uh, values or strategies or approaches. Uh, sometimes this is the result of long-standing ongoing conflict in the workplace between staff and in some cases I, I've actually been involved in workplace restorations where where I've uh, uh, interviewed someone and and, and, I, and I asked the person well you know what's what's going on here and and the person starts talking about things that happened 25 years ago right and so you know there's the this kind of culture of conflict that has been created and so part of the part of the um, uh, role of workplace restoration is actually culture change right. So it's the existing culture, and then there's some sort of uh, triggering event that um, brings it to to the attention of the uh, management and whatnot. Yeah, I, I I mean I 
I guess I'd say about that that uh, there might be a, there might be a triggering event that's causing a sufficient enough uh, amount of pain that propels the uh, employer to invest the resources in change. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, and, and you know, so where the employer is not necessarily feeling a lot of pain, uh, they, a situation like this may go on for for a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's you know, it's usually at the point you know where they're where they're going to call uh, an external practitioner in. It's usually at the point that things are pretty bad. Right. 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 Is there any? early warning indicators or whatnot that would, um, you know, managers could be aware of that they're, that they're in sort of a, a, a conflict uh, culture and uh, <laughs> that, that there's sort of a, a workplace uh, conflict canary, if you will, so that they, they're, they're better adapted to, you know, deal with those events and change and whatnot. Is... Yeah, there, there, there are, there are a few symptoms. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, easily observable symptoms. One of the, and you know, in some cases, it, it's it's uh, even as simple as walking into the workplace setting and and the you know the kind of the chill in the room. Mm. Um, this is this is the result of uh, a history of conflict. Uh, one party manifests conflict sometimes, but conflict that has led to a destruction or erosion in trust in the, uh, the, the, the workplace's systems to uh, have productive conversations about whatever the issues are. Mm -hmm. And so, so then what happens is that people don't talk um, about the issues. They, you know, instead it comes out in more sort of passive aggressive type uh, behaviors. And so um, in some workplaces, the, the warning signs can be much more blatant. Uh, and this is typically in workplaces where employees feel safer, for some reason, feel safer raising issues. Uh, and so let's say the unionized workplace, things will get to a point where all of a sudden grievances start to be filed. But, uh, but in, in my view, if the employer is waiting for grievances to be filed to do something about it, you know, the employer has sort of wasted a lot of opportunity to get this, these issues dealt with uh, early on before they become big, huge problems. Yeah, that's uh, one way to put it there. You use the expression, a, a chill in the room. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, um, you, you can imagine trying to work in that environment, the, the productivity, um, just the, the lack of communication. Um, I, I, I think a lot of managers and uh, business owners aren't really aware of the costs of conflict. Can you talk a bit about literally the cost of conflict? Like what's at stake here? Yeah. And, you know, this is something that we've done quite a bit of research on. There's a number of different categories of cost. And by conflict, what we're talking about is negative conflict. Uh, and, and how we define conflict is as uh, perceived injurious events where there's naming, blaming, and claiming, or, or at least naming and blaming. And, uh, and, 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 and therefore, you know, uh, 
there's negative attributions that arise from that and so on. So, so what happens in terms of costs? So there's, first of all, there's costs associated with um, the individuals directly involved in the conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, with regard to them, there are mental health costs that um, conflict can be extremely stressful and cause you know, all kinds of, uh, of mental health uh, challenges. Uh, and you know, in, in countries like Canada, uh, there's a financial cost to the employer in having employees who are suffering uh, in that way. And, uh, and, and that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the very obvious thing. What happens with where, uh, where there's a, a culture of conflict is that there's trust uh, in the organization is eroded. Uh, there's a lot of exit from employees who have options. And just to give you a good example of this, in 2007, the Level Playing Field Institute in the United States uh, did a uh, survey of professionals, 14,000 professionals in the United States. And um, what they found was that the vast majority of the reasons uh, for the vast majority of professionals, the reason why they leave their position was a sense of unfairness. Hmm. And there's, there's a direct relationship between conflict and unfairness because a perception of unfairness, because what happens when there is conflict is that there's an expectation that the, that the organization will have structures in place uh, to help manage conflict as it arises uh, and will ensure that people are, uh, feel like they are treated fairly uh, throughout whatever those processes are. And where that doesn't happen, people with options often tend to leave. And, and actually, that, with that um, survey, they estimated, this is 2007, uh, but they estimated that upwards of 2 million professionals a year in the United States leave their position wow. uh, because of fairness. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Um, you know, and, and, and we're still just talking about the tip of the iceberg. What happens when people are in conflict is that they become less productive. Uh, they spend more time in conflict with each other. Their engagement level is lower. Uh, the discretionary time, effort, and energy they have, instead of being devoted to the success of the organization, is being devoted to this conflict. Yeah. And the costs uh, for managing people in conflict are quite high. It's been estimated that, that the average manager spends 55% of their time managing conflict. Uh, and so, you know, you think about that from, a, from an organizational perspective, yeah. that's an incredible amount of money being spent on conflict. Uh, HR professionals, labor relations professionals, ombuds functions, you know, uh, occupational health and safety professionals, the list goes on of people who, you know, who are spending their time helping to manage conflict in organization. And, and still, we've just hit the, the tip of the iceberg, um, because when you account for the amount of actual time that's being spent on, on conflict uh, for 
uh, those in conflict. Uh, and, you know, you multiply that by the number of our, um, employees in, in, a, in a group, that starts really racking up. Uh, but by the way, I did want to mention that when conflict happens, there's a there's a bit of a um, misnomer or, or or misconception about how conflict works in organizations. So the, the you know the the traditional idea is that well conflict is between two people and they sort of have it out and that's the end of it. Sure. But that's not how it works. Uh, mm -hmm. Conflict plays itself into group dynamics, and so now it's not just person A and person B in conflict, but it's person A and all of person A's friends yeah. versus person B and all of person B's friends. And then the issues also proliferate. And that's what builds this culture of conflict. There's power in building your alliances and, and whatnot and, and power in, in um, weakening the others through gossip and sab yeah. It, uh, exactly nasty you know. situation that stat of 55 uh, percent of time is just that's incredible yeah so early warning uh dealing with this getting a healthy organization is certainly um what you want to aim for but let's say that was missed and um you're called in let's mm -hmm. um get into the process here sure um, what are the very first steps then that you would take and sort of the typical trajectory of the process then what what, what was it what's a typical process looks like look like yeah so uh, so the model that we have developed on this after working many years doing workplace restoration work has five phases to it uh, the first phase is called organizing the second phase is assessment the third phase is uh, uh, reporting and recommendations the fourth phase is engagement and the fifth phase is monitoring and this is a process that is, is actually intended to affect culture change in the organization. So just like any other culture change exercise, it's a process as opposed to a project. Right. Uh, and so, so let's begin with uh, the organizing phase. One of the things that's fairly unique about our approach to workplace restoration is we want to try and build internal capacity within the leadership of the organization for them to uh, carry on this process. Uh, and and this, is, this is critically important, build trust in the leadership and provide the leadership with the tools that they need to carry this process on. Now, we're still there, we're, we're uh, you know, a part of what's going on and we play some key roles at, in certain phases here. So the first thing that we want to do is we want to build a team around the restoration. We call it a workplace restoration team. Mm -hmm. And this team, you know, we consist of um, uh, workplace leaders and workplace leaders would be you know, primarily the uh, line management leaders. There might be some HR function there. Uh, if it's a unionized workplace, there, there might be union leaders. And uh, whether or not it's a unionized workplace, there might, there might also be, and there usually is, um, representatives from the work group where, you know, that is the subject of this uh, restoration. And so what we, what we look for there is, um, 
is uh, sort of informal leaders in, in that workplace. And this team is going to be the focal point for the restoration process moving forward. Mm-hmm. And so all the, the, all the communications come from the team, um, you know, advocacy for the process, uh, uh, feedback about how the process is going, it all gets filtered into the team. And our role is a role of facilitator for that part of the process. This is a lesson that not only that we learn by practice, but it's also well established in uh, theory. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Costantino and Merchants Designing Conflict Management Systems is a good, good example of that, mm-hmm. um, where we are not the person coming in to fix the problem. We're, we're the, we, we are the, the group that is coming in to empower yeah. the workplace leaders to fix the problem. So it reminds me of uh, locally led peace initiatives where you, you know, you go in and you help, you know, the locals do it. It's the same concept. So then you get that sustainable lasting change. Yeah, exactly. No, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, because, because if what we're looking at is culture change, yeah. well, we're not going to be a part of that culture right two years down the road right right? um and so we want them to take you know to take the leadership role and empower them to do it so uh, and and, you know and by the way one of the one of the challenges that many workplaces have is that there isn't a strongly held view that leaders are conflict managers and there's a management philosophy about this that we typically find in organizations where there are, where there are challenges, and that is in organizations where the leadership sees their role as to produce more, mm. uh, to have you know better bottom line, better outcomes, and so on. And that, and they don't really see that it's their like line management doesn't see that it's their role to sort of take care of people. Right. That's HR's job, but. In the modern world, which has been made ex- exquisitely clear by the psychological health and safety standard, uh, this is a core competency of leadership now. Right. Is emotional intelligence, uh, basic conflict management skills, communication skills, you know, so on. And so this is part of what we're doing: is we're we're helping to train the leadership to be good conflict managers. Yeah. Um, you're doing that very early on. This is the the first stage. You're you're doing capacity building of the leadership. Yeah. Okay, let's keep moving then. You're so that's sure. your organizing stage. <clears throat> we're we're, we're, we're just getting started here. <laughs> that that's right. So right. so the organizing and 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 I'm actually I'm spending a lot of time in the organizing phase because, in my view, it's the most important. Right. Because it, if you don't set yourself up for success, mm-hmm. you're going to fail. And so this is ultimately, this is a trust building exercise. So uh, when, when there's a conflict in a work group, uh, that conflict has produced an erosion of trust. And what we're trying to do is rebuild trust, rebuild trust in, in people, processes and circumstances. So the first major step in rebuilding trust is to build a team uh, of individuals uh, with different interests that can come together and, and uh, build trust in each other. It's emulating what the whole process is going to look like. Right. So, so we've got this team, and the next phase is going to be the 
quote unquote assessment phase. And uh, typically speaking, mechanically, we want to have a conversation with each and every person in that subject workplace, like the subject work group, uh, whether or not they've been identified as in conflict, um, because we know that everybody is affected by the conflict. Number one, everybody is affected by the conflict. Number two, everyone has a role to play in uh, establishing the course moving forward. Mm-hmm. And so we want to, so in the assessment phase, we're not just going to be asking about, about the past and, you know, and what's happened and the present state, you know, what's going on now, but we also want each individual to contribute to the future. So we're going to be uh, getting their advice on, you know, how, how do we move forward? How do we make things work and so on? And, you know, the assessment phase can have a few other things, like depending on the size of the workplace. So um, one, of the, one of the other differences between our model and um, some other models is that some of the other models are, aren't very effective once you get beyond about 15 people. Part of the reason for that is that they've placed more or less all the responsibility on the practitioner to affect the restoration so by the introduction of the team in the in the organizing phase right we've taken a big step there right but but we can also we've found uh we can we can have an effective restoration in workplaces with dozens and dozens and even hundreds of people the assessment strategy needs to be different for larger organizations we may uh, need surveys you may need to have some focus groups and so on. But, but again, that's entirely dependent on the resources that the organization wants to put into this. You know, I'd say ultimately the best uh, assessment phase involves an individual conversation between the facilitator and each and every person involved. And then what comes out of that in the reporting and recommendations phase is a list of themes, issues, and recommendations. Right. And so this is not an investigation. So there's no rules of evidence. There's, there's no 300-page reports with you know, detailed, meticulous findings of fact and so on and so forth. The reporting is meant to be uh, a sense of acknowledging what people are saying about uh, and feeling about about this workplace, um, a list of the recommendations that have been generated from the participants in confidence, and then further recommendations from the facilitator. And there's a reason for the further recommendations, and there's a couple of different uh, approaches related to that. Um, one. Um, theoretical viewpoint would say that the uh, facilitator should not make any recommendations except recommendations about the process. So, so in other words, the facilitator might recommend, well, there may need to be uh, one-on-one coaching sessions mm-hmm. with individuals. There may need to be some interpersonal mediation. There may need to right. be group facilitation. Right. So that's one that's one approach. And another approach is that, is that the facilitator is adding to the recommendations that have been made by 
the participants uh, with best practices type recommendations. Mm-hmm. And, and either, you know, these both approaches have their pluses and minuses. Uh, the important thing is to make it clear with the client which approach is going to be used. Uh, but, but typically speaking, the first approach is, is the one that, in a sense, vests the most authority into the participants themselves. The second approach may sort of detract somewhat from that, but what it adds is um, best practices from other workplaces, which can also be really helpful. So then, then we get into the engagement phase, and the engagement phase really implements the recommendations right. that have been put into reporting. Right. Uh, timelines, schedules, deliverables. The workplace restoration team is still engaged here. They are still involved in reviewing the recommendations, uh, maybe even you know uh, providing feedback and so on and so forth, and and may also be involved in at least the advocacy part of the engagement phase, where they're encouraging people to take advantage of what's being offered. I was going to ask about that. The uh, the second point there was that you were um, sort of in the reporting stage. You were acknowledging what know what 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 was happening there and i mean that's that's a pretty important conflict de-escalation technique is just to acknowledge the other you know what they're feeling and whatnot now that acknowledgement's coming from you though um Mm -hmm. is is there ever the management or perhaps the um the team the uh the restoration team that's sort of acknowledging the issues within the organization yeah okay and and this and there's a there's a stream of dialogue throughout the whole process okay. where this happens. It begins right at the start. When mm-hmm. we when we um, make the efforts to construct the restoration team, so we're going to, the, the leadership is going to reach out to the other stakeholders, uh, you know, acknowledging that this workplace has a challenge. Right. And that, you know, and that, uh, you know, and, and we strongly encourage the leadership to take responsibility for their role in, in the challenge. Uh, and then to set the assessment phase up for success, the restoration team is going to acknowledge that um, that there's a reason why we're going through this process, right. uh, that that there are challenges, uh, there's opportunities, mm-hmm. and that, that they're going to be as transparent as possible. And, you know, they want to engage people in, in the thinking about that. And then getting into the reporting part after the assessment, the reporting part is going to lay this out in a great deal of detail. But what are the challenges from the perspective of each person here, right? And uh, you know, what are some of the reasons for that and, and the responsibilities and so on. Uh, but it's done, it's done in a structured way that is meant to protect the psychological safety of the participants in the process. So we wouldn't say employee X said this. Right. What we, what we would say is, you know, this is one of the issues that has been raised. Uh, but but uh, also just as important is this list of recommendations that the employees or, or the workplace participants come up with themselves. And the reason why I'm saying workplace participants instead of just employees is that I want to make it clear that 
line managers, supervisors, HR professionals involved in this in this workplace. And basically everybody who lives in this workplace has a right to a voice in in the process. So this is not just the staff telling the leaders what how crappy leaders they are. It's also the leaders talking, you know, about about uh, themselves and about the challenges and so on and so forth. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's and, and it's meant to, as is typical with um, culture change, it's meant to um, be a process that helps to reform a consensus, a social compact, as as it, as it were, uh, mm-hmm. for moving forward. Uh, something that everybody has a common understanding of. And, and often with um, a restoration process, this involves quite a bit of discussion about roles and responsibilities. Right. Whose job is it to do what? So right. Now, can you give me an idea in the engagement phase? I mean, you're going to have, he, he mentioned, you know, some are going to need coaching. There could, could be mediations needed. I mean, what sort, I, I guess this is going to depend on the size of the organization, but this could be a pretty huge and quite involved process. Like what time period are we talking here? Um, what sort of issues might you be coaching on? Like how many mediations might, might be involved? Mm-hmm. Just give me an idea. Of it's a good, good question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give, give you my, uh, my, uh, old lawyer's answer it depends right but but really um interestingly enough when we each time we go through this process the thought is that oh my god the engagement piece is going to take forever because there's all this big mess and so on and so forth but here's how conflict works because there's such a direct relationship between conflict and trust what appears to be an insurmountable task at the beginning of the process starts to change dramatically as you start moving through the process. If you were to guess at the beginning of a process, let's say with uh, 30 people, where there's been sort of conflict right uh, through that that part of the organization for many years, you, you might think, oh my God, you know, we're gonna have to, you know, it's gonna be mediation after mediation and, you know, and intervention and coaching and mm-hmm. uh, so on and so forth. But one of the big reasons for that is that people aren't talking with each other. They're not communicating with each other. Why aren't they communicating with each other? Because they don't trust each other. And so a workplace restoration, like a mediation, acknowledges that the main driver of conflict now is a lack of trust. And so what a process does like workplace restoration or mediation is that it compensates for a lack of trust in people with enhanced trust in a process yes and so the more momentum that is built around this process the fewer negative attributions arise in others uh and so it it kind of it, it sort of normalizes uh, relationships. It, it starts normalizing relationships right off the bat. It starts taking um, the heavy anvil that's you know that's hanging over people's heads. Uh, so some of that is is managed through this process. With you know, and you can see uh, like a, in in the workplace setting an almost visible sigh of relief 
that, okay, there's something here that we mm. can do that we're mm -hmm. doing. And so much of conflict is related to fear that, uh, you know, uh, people uh, in conflict end, end up being in fear of each other, in a sense, in fear of themselves and, and their own conversations, you know, coming back to uh, uh, difficult conversations, you know, their identity conversations, their feelings conversations. So in the assessment phase, what we often find in the assessment phase, if we're really successful, successful with this, is that by the time we get to the assessment phase, way over half of our job is already done because people have had an opportunity to unload, get them, talking. Also, mm -hmm. get them talking. They also have had an opportunity to provide meaningful recommendations and input. And guess what's happening when this assessment phase is going on? People are starting to talk to each other in the workplace itself. Right. And so the dynamic is already starting to change. Now, something like coaching, coaching is something that we do. Uh, we do it fairly extensively. And, and, and I'll, I'll say here, I'll confess that um, the vast majority of coaching is actually not conflict management coaching. It's leadership coaching. Leadership, right. You know, and, and it is directed at the leaders. It's mm -hmm. directed at how to be a good leader in this, in this context. And, you know, and, and, you know, and I have to say that the vast majority of workplace restorations that we step into involves something to do with one or more leaders. Yeah. Man management styles. Does, does their conflict management styles, is that um, one of the big focuses there? That conflict management styles is, is, is a big piece of it. Uh, yeah. Emotional intelligence, right. uh, even such things as understanding, uh, the leaders understanding what's going on within themselves. Right. You know, so so one of one of the typical things we do is we'll, we'll provide difficult conversations type coaching for some leaders. Uh, and then, but it's not just leaders. There, there are staff and you know what some might have called maybe 20 years ago, difficult personalities or mm -hmm. you know that sort of thing. And part of the coaching is not just how to sort of make yourself better, but how to respond to someone that you do consider difficult, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so by building this capacity that, you know, that makes some difference. It, interpersonal mediation is used. Um, it's, uh, in, in my experience, it's only used in com uh, combination with fairly extensive coaching. And the reason why I'm saying that is there, there's, there's kind of two drivers for this. The first one is that the need for mediation, the need for an air clearing exercise facilitated by a third party uh, has to do with trust between the, uh, the two individuals involved. And, and again, we're back to trust in the process. Um, right. And so if the coaching is very successful, then you may not need mediation hmm. uh, because the individuals involved will have you know the skills and you know and, and again self-awareness uh, to be able to manage this themselves and it's only in the more extreme ends where a, a, a third party facilitated interpersonal mediation might be um, successful but to make that successful you have to prepare the parties quite extensively 
and then and then the the um, kind of the, the the main piece is the group facilitation, which in my view is is pretty important, vitally important to the process of moving on. You know, the the exercise of getting people in the room or virtual room now uh, together to uh, to agree upon a consensus, and 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 I just wanted to mention about that that we've covered four of the five phases yeah and the monitoring phase is something that many employers will skip and in my experience they skip it to their great disadvantage uh, but the reason why they skip it is sort of like this you know if you have a pain in your side and you go to the doctor and the doctor says uh to you okay um here, you know, take these take these pills and come back in three weeks, and we'll we'll uh, we'll look at you again. There's a there's a uh, huge proportion of people who, once the pain is gone, won't go back to the doctor again. Right. Uh, and the same principle applies here. That once the the employer kind of stops feeling the pain, the employer is going to say, "Oh, well, everything's fine now." But what we're talking about is culture change, and there is significant recidivism in culture uh, if it's not reinforced. Mm -hmm. And so monitoring is an opportunity to positively reinforce this new culture. Right. Uh, celebrate the successes. Uh, diagnose the, you know, the areas where more work needs to be done, and mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and continue on. In my experience. Um, for those um, employers who have um, have agreed to monitoring and taken it seriously, it's more about uh, celebrating the successes uh, because they have embraced the the concept that this is really a culture change and, and it needs to be constantly reinforced. So when we come back to assess again, which is part of the monitoring process, we'll we'll come back and we'll you know have some sort of assessment. It might not be as rigorous as the first one. Like it might simply be, you know, we could do a survey or we could just, you know, talk with the restoration team itself, uh, or we might have a, you know, a 10 minute get together with each of the staff, that sort of thing. But typically speaking, by the time we get there, because this has been taken this seriously, we're able to report a great deal of success. That doesn't mean that that uh, there isn't still work to do. And, and let me just give you an example, if I may, about this. A few years back, we went into a um, do a restoration in a uh, recreational facility in um, uh, for a municipality in southern Ontario. On the face of it, the conflict in the organization was between two people who had been in conflict with each other for about 15 years. And it was serious conflict, uh, like uh, e even to the extent that um, there was an allegation that death threats had been made and yeah. so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so this conflict sort of raged its way on and um, you know, people taking sides and so on and so forth. And, and, it, and it was between two women Women who were who are quite senior in the in the work group, and so we worked through all of that. 
we sorted it through and you know and it was clear that it affected everyone and so on and so forth and then you know we kind of built a new consensus moving forward and we came back to monitor six months later and people were saying yeah you know all that's great you know uh, these two women are working really well together and so on and so forth but now we've got another challenge and and what they realized was that this challenge between these two women was so loud it was so like the conflict was so overwhelming that it overshadowed all the other problems in the workplace right and so once that was sorted out then there's these other underlying problems that uh that we had the opportunity to work with them on and one of them was about it it was a generational difference Mm -hmm. and that generational difference actually involved the two women being on one side together Uh um uh, as well as a few other senior people and a bunch of junior people who had were on another side had another issue altogether so right wow yeah okay that's um it sounds like an incredibly thorough process and um one i'm sure you've tweaked over years and years of um trial and error and experience and um i'm I'm happy that it's um getting good results i'm curious about the the concept of rightness within culture and uh, transformation is there a period maybe in the the assessment phase where you're talking to people and you just realize that this isn't ripe and is there a window where your efforts aren't going to be very effective or is that something you can work through as well it's a it's it's a uh really i think a really useful concept uh the idea of of issues being ripe for resolution and sometimes rotten for resolution interestingly enough in in the workplace restoration world uh, perhaps somewhat differently than the, the the world of workplace health assessment or or even maybe interpersonal mediation by the time an organization is prepared to have someone come in to engage in a full-blown process like this it's pretty clear that things are right for resolution this can be a fairly expensive process as you can imagine yeah, we're talking right. about culture change here right and and the uh, the need the, the, the need has to feel very strong for an organization to invest that kind of time and effort and money into it. And it's got to be pretty profound. I mean, uh, with one uh, larger uh, municipal uh, uh, workplace that we work with uh, in Western Canada, there had been four or five terminations. There was many, many grievances filed and uh there was you know a huge reputational impact on the organization for what was going on in these you know in these work groups so i think that's more typical of a restoration Mm. process Um, i i I would say one thing though that recently i've come across a situation where the conflict might be ripe for resolution but there are too many distractions in place. And, you know, which, which I think might, might fit well into, you know, the theory about rightness 
for resolution. So in other words, there's still too much fighting going on and, and people are still too much in fight mode. And so, uh, so it makes it, it makes it a distraction and difficult. I mean, we, right. we, we have been able to affect good restoration, even when, you know, some of the parties are in uh, pretty serious, you know, fight mode with each other. Uh, but that's, that makes it a lot more difficult than where the parties are recognizing that, hey, we've got to find a different way. On, on that topic, do you find you get much or have you encountered much resentment from the, the personnel when, you know, you guys show up for this work? Do you get any um, pushback? And, you know, if you do, how, how might you deal with that? Yeah. So, and this is, this, this brings us back to, you know, how you set that up for success in the organizing phase. So, mm. you know, uh, first, uh, first it has to do with, you know, with how we represent ourselves as practitioners to the client and the importance of involving the other workplace stakeholders in this process right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so in play er early on when we were doing restoration work and still finding our way, we uh, you know, had opportunities to make mistakes. And uh, one of them was uh, in a unionized work environment, not being able to convince the employer to more directly involved the union leadership in the process. And that caused no end of problems uh, in terms of our credibility and so on. The, the, you know, one of the big challenges with, with workplace restoration is if this is, if this is a conflict that can be perceived as employer versus employee, uh, or let's say uh, bad leader, quote unquote, bad leader versus versus staff, and who's retaining the the practitioner? It could be the bad leader, right? And sometimes you don't know that until you're in the process. That that actually happened to me not that long ago. That uh, under the auspices of we need a restoration here and so on and so forth. It all seemed good and you know we're getting involved in the process. Well, it turns out that the person talking to me was at the core of the problem. Right. So having said that, my insistence about restoration is that if there's a I would qualify the client as being somebody other than uh, people who are directly involved in conflict. Uh, so that might require, in this case, I had to insist that my relationship not be with this person, but be with the chair of the board and you know, so on. Right. right. Challenging, challenging dynamic. <clears throat> yeah, um, yeah, it can be. It's that that's one of the trickiest parts, actually. Right. <laughs> and, and when do you discover that? Probably during the assessment or whatnot. To wrap sort of this process up, you mentioned the beginning, um, the need is, is pretty clear to you, or it's pretty clear to the organization that the need is there. Now, what about the end of the process? Uh, you, we talked about the engagement process where you're getting down and doing the work and also how it could seem overwhelming, but the process itself can sort of gather momentum um, just through, you know, the dialogues and whatnot and trusting the process. And it just starts uh, taking a life of its own and uh, progressing uh, quite nicely. Now, how do you tell 
you're you're ready to move on is the end clear yeah so uh, you know typically speaking we like to cap a engagement process off with a, with group facilitation and that will actually give us a pretty good indication okay um and you know by the way we typically find that there's an order to these things to the interventions in the engagement phase they begin with individual then go to interpersonal and okay. then go to group right and there's there's a good reason for that order because you want to prepare people at each stage for the next stage mm -hmm. uh, so with with regard to coaching you want to choose the people who most need the help get them to a place where they can actually productively participate in an interpersonal mediation for example and with regard to the difference between interpersonal mediation and group facilitation you want that interpersonal mediation to get those people who are in conflict with each other to a point where that conflict is not going to be a distraction for the group facilitation right. process right so you can start to see kind of markers of success uh, along the way interesting and, and and if you're not let's say having a hard time getting somewhere on the coaching piece you may go back and say well we need more sessions with coaching before we get to interpersonal mediation right right, right? do you have time th thank you for that do you, do you have time just for a a few more questions here. I know we're running sure. sort of long. Just yeah, I'm I'm curious if you could just switch to the um the the actual practitioner. It's interesting work and uh, challenging work. Do you feel there's some essential qualities um, for a practitioner to have or to do this sort of work? Yeah, you know, uh, Michelle Fanouf, my uh, uh, Alberta partner, and I have put a lot of thought into this. Actually, we, we've we even thought about. Um, the, the idea of, of, of producing a, uh, you know, a kind of a, um, a voluntary guide in that regard. And, and the reason why we've done that is that we recognize that workplace restoration is so much more than coaching and mediation right. and training and group facilitation. It's more than the pieces. It's more than the pieces, and uh, and just to just to give you a bit of uh, a bit of a sense of that, change management, understanding of change management principles is critically important. Mm -hmm. Understanding of project management, right. this is a huge project, you know, and there's a lot of moving parts, and being able to manage those those moving parts is is critically important. Anybody. Uh, practicing this in a unionized work environment would have to have a very deep understanding of union management relationships. Mm -hmm. And in my, in my view, some background in union management relationship building, uh, because uh, it's critically important to the success of the process. Uh, coaching, with regard to coaching, conflict management coaching, obviously, but also leadership and executive coaching are skills that are used in this in this process with regard to mediation and understanding and familiarity and comfort with various models and mediation approaches is, is very important 
uh, for example, there are some who would say that, for example, evaluative mediation is not mediation. It is in this context, or, or at least evaluative mediation is something that is used in this context, and it has to be used in this context, which brings us to um, the need to understand, have a, have a fairly good grounding in the uh, legal processes and laws that affect this workplace, you know. So there, there's, uh, there's, you know, quite a variety yeah. of things that 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 go into this. Um, yeah. You know, I, I mean, having said that, there are people from different backgrounds who have been quite successful at this. They've leaned on the skills that they already have, and they're very open to learning new skills all the time. I wouldn't mind getting your take on. You're, you're a musician as well. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about um, mediation and negotiation as being uh, the art uh, and science? So the extent that you're relying on your intuitive, uh, imprecise, and sort of a a creative approach versus sort of more rigid process uh, pulling largely from by the book techniques. Is there an optimal synergy there? What's, What's your take on that? Yeah, I, and you know, I think it's different for every practitioner. Um, uh, for for myself, I have worked on the guiding principle that I have to be careful not to be a prisoner of a process. Right. Uh, and and uh, that sometimes a process can lead you into a uh, into a direction that's not helpful for the restoration itself. And this is actually one of the reasons why. Uh, you know, I insist on calling this workplace restoration as opposed to workplace mediation, because there's so much more involved in this. And uh, applying, like strictly a, a applying, for example, the uh, transformative mediation approach, uh, mm-hmm. as as it was articulated by Folger and Bush, is extremely pro- problematic in workplace setting, uh, because there are huge power imbalances in the workplace setting and you need to be very careful about how you prepare participants to actually participate in a mediation session given those power imbalances right uh, so that you know so there's uh, and and you know what what i'd say is my guiding principle has been to extract the wisdom from all the models that i can and not be confined by the models Hostage themselves. Them, yes. Yeah. Right. Now, before wrapping up, um, I'm wondering if you have any uh, general tips for leaders, managers, uh, business owners, and the like. Are there any preventative measures that can be taken to um, maintain or create uh, healthy, vibrant workplaces so they don't have to um, <laughs> bring you in? Um, or, how, or how about for employees? Any tips for them working within a toxic environment? Um, yeah. Is there anything they can look to confirm it's unhealthy or uh, what should they do? A- anything at all here? Yeah, so uh, you know, just starting with uh, starting with employers and uh, yeah. managers and the like. And first of all, um, let let me let me share a story that uh, uh, experience that I had when I was doing a uh, workplace health assessment, which you know has some similarities to restoration. I was talking to the manager of procurement 
in an organization. And the manager of, of procurement was saying, you know, my staff are uh, driven crazy. They don't talk with each other. They're always pointing fingers at each other. And uh, nobody knows what anybody else is doing. And nobody has time to do anything because uh, we're just constantly bombarded here and, and the whole place is a mess. And I, um, I asked the manager, well, tell me about your staff meetings. The manager says, staff meetings? We don't have time for staff meetings. And he went on this, you know, litany again. And, you know, so we had a conversation about this and uh, talked this through. And about half an hour later, he realized that they don't have time not to have staff meetings, that um, there wasn't any opportunity for people to communicate with each other in a positive and structured way. There wasn't any opportunity for people to understand what each other is doing. And with the lack of staff meetings, there was lots of opportunity to build negative attributions toward each other and resentment. And this is what I say to managers and leaders all the time. If you want to understand what the state of conflict is with your staff in the organization, then talk to them. Right. You know, make sure that you are able to create a safe place to have discussions with them. And, it, you know, and of course, that assumes that you're not the biggest problem here. Right as as the manager, yeah, but right. uh, but you know, uh, but but even even having said that, if you fear that you're one of our problems, then think that through and think through why that might be the case, and and ask advice from your staff and from your colleagues about you know about this about how you can be a better manager, uh, that sort of thing. You know, in in terms of employees, um, I. I think it's pretty obvious when there's an organization when there's conflict. You know, mm -hmm. people aren't open with each other, they're not talking. The mood in the room is usually pretty negative. It's, uh, it's I, I, you know, I've literally walked into some workplaces and stepping in the door, the temperature went down by about 20 degrees. You know, like, in, I mean, you can, you can feel it. Um, the chill in the room you mentioned, yeah. The chill in the room, mm -hmm. um, but this is but this is uh, primarily the result of unmanaged one-party manifest conflict that that arises through negative attributions and no good, safe, uh, supportive opportunity to have dialogue right. about issues. Right. So. It if an employee is in that situation and um, what do they do, especially if they're, their managers or they can't turn to them, the, uh, the communication channels aren't there. What's, what do you suggest they do? Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's um, uh, depending on the work situation that you're in and there's a, there's such a huge variety of work situations that it's, you know, it's difficult yeah. to say what your rights are. Even if you're a unionized employee, let's take, for example, federal government, you could be a unionized employee, but you could be indeterminate. And what that means is that the employer basically has the right not to hire you back after a certain period of time. 
well, whatever rights you think you have are going to be trumped by that fact, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're, you're most likely going to be very guarded in your criticisms, uh, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, but having said that, like I'd say from a, a realist's perspective, the best way to deal with a situation where there is conflict is to work on yourself and manage yourself. Yeah. Uh, and you know what I'm not talking about is harassment or discrimination or violence, but in a case of conflict, and you know I've I've had this uh, the unfortunate opportunity of having to coach you know dozens if not hundreds of people in a situation where they feel like they're not being valued or treated well my advice to them has been you know to do what it takes to choose to see yourself as a positive contributor and kind of manage your responses and your approach uh, mm -hmm. to make the deliberate decision to take a positive approach to things and, and that's something that uh, how do i put this that works on others as well you know mm -hmm. as, as, they, as they see you uh, being more positive, it's more likely that they will be too. The spillover effect, yeah. Exactly. Um, that that's great. Uh, is there is there anything you'd like to add? I at this point, or I've kept you for a while here. Is uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, well, um, yeah. I mean, I I think I think um, the one thing that I'd like to underline, especially about restoration, is that that the circumstances upon which you're brought, brought into a restoration often seem very bleak, you know, so I, I don't, I don't get called for a restoration because everything is rosy and, you know, yeah. uh, everybody's happy. But in my experience with this, what I can say is most of the time, at least half of the time, the workplace and the people in the workplace, coming out of the restoration process are way better off than they were going in. Mm -hmm. Even to the extent uh, with some of these workplaces, uh, for example, that uh, recreational facility that I was talking about, that that was highly, that was regarded within that the whole city as the worst place to work in the oh, whole wow. city. And by the time we were through, it was actually regarded as the best facility to work. Wow. And so this is a glorious opportunity um, disguised as a challenge uh, for, for many workplaces. It's a glorious opportunity to reinvent yourself. Right. And, uh, and, that's, and that's really the business that we're in. Wonderful. That's what we always yeah. speak about, of, uh, seeing conflict as an opportunity, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Thank you so much um, for being so open about your process. Uh, really insightful. Um, if people want to learn more about uh, you, your work, where can they find you? Yeah, they can go to my website, uh, workplacefairness.ca. And uh, yeah, and there's, there's, uh, there's lots to dig into at the site. Right on. Thanks again, Blaine. All right. Okay. Thank you, Warren. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more from international experts digging into a range of topics on conflict, power, and persuasion, subscribe to your favorite podcast app or visit us at cn.org. That's C-I-I-A-N dot O-R-G.